for Jeff Merrick's Random Hockey Fact of the Day. Okay, in advance, so Greg Wyshynski here from ESPN coming up in a couple of moments. Jeff Sanderson is the uh, target of our Random Hockey Fact of the Day. Jeff Sanderson, uh, who many of you younger folks will refer to maybe as Jake Sanderson's dad which I'm sure he's happy to be known as, but Jeff Sanderson himself had a really impressive NHL career uh, around 20 years, 19, 20 years he played in the NHL uh, from the Northwest Territories, um, drafted by the Hartford Weather's second round of the 1990 draft. By the way, there's one person in the NHL still from the 1990 draft. Can you name that person? Then another random fact coming up. Um, played in the Western Hockey League with Swift Currents. Now, he played with the Whalers, the Hurricanes, the Canucks, the Sabres, CBJ, Coyotes, Flyers, and finished up his career with the Edmonton Oilers. 700 points, 355 goals for Jeff Sanderson. But what I want to mention here on the random hockey fact of the day is his hockey sticks. Jeff Sanderson used three different sticks every game. He had a first period stick which was the normal stick length. He had a second period stick, which was a half inch shorter, and then a third period stick, which was yet another half inch shorter than the second period stick. The reason he wanted to force himself to dig in and bend his knees deeper as the game went on and not be a straight leg skater by the time he got tired and played in the third period. Jeff Sanderson's three sticks a game, each one shorter than the last. Today's random hockey fact of the day. Greg Wyshynski is aboard, but let's throw to the Greg Wyshynski music, which I just found a title for a couple of seconds ago. Okay, here we go. All right, Wish. (laughs) Yeah? You know what the name of this song is well it's jaunty it's a little bit kind of tiki lounge yeah so i will say mm-hmm. the name of it is my tie swinging no frisky elevator <laughs> i believe Lance that was uh, one that of the gonna go <laughs> i believe that was one of the episode titles on mad men uh, if memory serves, I believe so. So let me get this yes. straight: your your show uh, your show this season features a random yeah. Jeff Merrick fact of the day. Yeah, yeah. Was that the original name Top for of your hour show? Two. <laughs> no, I wanted to call the show Rink Fries. Did I ever tell you this? I wanted to call it because I think the Jeff oh, Merrick show is a stupid did. name for a show. You didn't. What is Rink, rink Fries? Is what I wanted to call it. Well, everyone, first of all, everyone loves rink fries. And I mean, mm-hmm. I, I've always, I'll always, every rink that I, every new rink that I always go to, I'll always try the rink fries. And I just think that it sounds better for a, a radio show slash TV slash podcast property. Um, a lot better than the Jeff Merrick show, which is a little bit navel gazing. I understand it's a branding exercise, but still, I want to call it rink fries. But anyway, so, so, so today, the- okay, here's a question for you. Yeah, yeah. Here's here's my question for you. So today's with Jeff Sanderson, father of Jake Sanderson, defenseman for the Ottawa Senators, and the three different sticks that he would use every game, one shorter than the one before. So here's my question about sticks. And this is where I miss having Zidane Chara in the game. 
because Chara could always be used as an extreme example for anything that you were presenting. That's one of the reasons why. Well, one, I love Chara, but I really miss having him in the end because you could say, well, what about Zdeno Chara? So there's a maximum stick length in the NHL rule book. There's not a minimum. So you could probably go use a mini stick for like one of those Bauer minis if you wanted. <laughs> um, get your mystery mini package, folks. And what stick am I using today? Um, but there's a maximum stick length. And Chara always had um, an exemption because he was so giant. But here's my mm-hmm. question. Someone out there will have the answer and we'll spit it back on Twitter in like two seconds. So if you're playing with the Boston Bruins, okay, say you're Brad Marchand, okay, and your oh. stick breaks and you skate by the bench to get another stick and the trainer inadvertently passes you Zdeno Chara's stick, which is technically illegal, but because Chara has an exemption, he's allowed to use it, and you score a goal on that shift using Zdeno Chara's stick, is the goal disallowed? That is a fantastic question. I would imagine that the goal would stand. <laughs> and I would imagine that the equipment trainer would sure? be fined and suspended with the maximum force <laughs> of the National Hockey League hockey, hockey Operations Department. Colin Campbell would be on the phone oh. with him being like, are you trying to disparage the good name of the game by having little men play with big sticks? <laughs> Uh, I don't know that it would count. Wouldn't it be considered an illegal stick? Well, you'd have to, I mean, I guess so, right? Like it would require a measurement. And in in the case of a char stick, it would just be like Marchand standing next to it. Look, um, (laughs) (laughs) I I guess by the letter of the law, you could, but I mean, wouldn't a player have plausible deniability as far as using what could be considered an illegal piece of equipment if it's just handed to him from the bench would it be a bench miner are you responsible for your you're you're responsible for the uh, the equipment you have on the ice right or else marty mcsorley back in 1993 would say i'm just using what he handed me it's true so i don't know well there's someone with a much we much we'll never have to envision is going to weigh in on this one yeah, yes. and hopefully we'll never what, have to envision uh, what, what that an, one looks an apocalyptic like. scenario in which somebody would use a stick that's slightly too big. I like your idea of mini sticks, though. I, I figure, uh, you know, I, my theory mm. is that Connor McDavid enters every season sort of bored and wants to pick a new thing to do, kind of like how Sid would pick a new part of his game to master each season. Th- this is probably going to be the case after yeah. McDavid wins the Cup this year, but like, He's going to get to the point where he's just like, you know what? I'm not going to score 180 points. I'm going to win the Selkie this year. And then McDavid wins the Selkie. And maybe one year after he's conquered everything um, and he's within like 100 points of Gretzky's all-time record, he'll just say, you know what? This season, mini sticks. Why not? Let's see how good I am. There's no minimum requirement for the length of stick. Mini sticks for, for Connor, and we'll see what kind of points I can put up. Or, or, or. He says, you know what? This game is easy. It's beer league for me now. Next year, I'm shooting right. <laughs> that I would be... Like, there, 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 are, I, I there, there have it... been players... There, 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 there have been players... I think of, like, Gordie Howe was probably the most famous ambidextrous hockey player, but so was Chris Chelios. Chelios could fire it both ways. All right, McDavid. Win the cup. 
pile up like a dozen or however many heart trophies. But if you really want to impress us, do it as a right-hand shot. Here's what we do. Here's what we do. Before the, se- before the okay. first game of the season, uh, we work with Steve Mayer of the NHL to set up a, a, a pay-per-view. And on that pay-per-view, okay. we're going to have a wheel. And it's going to have all of the different possibilities of what McDavid will be restricted by that season. And McDavid <laughs> will stand next to the wheel. We'll spin the wheel. And it could be shoot differently handed. It could be mini sticks. It could be when Leon's on the ice, you have to be off the ice. It could be anything. And Ooh. then we spin the wheel and we find out what, what McDavid has to do that year. The wheel of Connor. Now you, you, uh, you, uh, I mean, along with other people, I mean, Elliot has, has picked the Oilers as well. You believe the Oilers have it in yeah. them to win the Stanley cup this season. Now they do play in the Valley of death, which is the Pacific. I mean, the cup lives there now. Uh, why is there that much spice in your chili for the Oilers this year? Greg Wyshynski of ESPN. So I picked them last year and that didn't work out, but I decided it's because I'm only, I was a year too early. And my thought process last year Mm -hmm. was that when you get two generational talents on the same team, they're going to win a cup eventually, but be it Gretzky and Messier, be it Yager and Mario, be it Sid and Malkin, eventually they're going to win. So, that's like the starting point of my thesis. But the other part of it, and the reason I picked them, and, and you, you hit on something very important, which is that I'm very crestfallen that I picked them when I see Elliot pick them, LeBron pick them. Like if I knew it was going to be the popular choice, I would have swerved and, and called the Golden Knights repeat, obviously, because it's better <laughs> for content. Um, yeah. But I think they're going to win for one reason, which is that I think that that Connor and Leon in particular have reached the uh, what I will call Nathan McKinnon level of playoff disgust. Losing is no longer an option. If you see Dreisaitl in his post-series press conference last year when they got eliminated, he looked as fed up with this nonsense as anyone has ever looked before. I've heard... Uh, from oh, yeah. people that uh, know Connor and know the Oilers, that while he didn't peel the paint off the walls when they were eliminated last year, he made it explicitly clear, did McDavid, what was expected from his team in the offseason as far as preparation and what was going to be expected from his team this season as far as making sure they're playing the right kind of hockey to succeed in the playoffs. So when you have your two best players reach the point where they are nauseated and angry by the concept of falling short of a championship run like McKinnon was two years ago, that is the point in which they win a cup. So I don't disagree. And I I used to always make the joke about McKinnon and now I'll make the same thing about Connor McDavid, uh, which is, you know, until he won the Stanley cup, we didn't know if Nathan McKinnon had uh, a top layer of teeth because we never saw it. Like guy never (laughs) smiled like ever. It didn't matter. Like pile up trophies, like didn't know. And I'll ask the same thing. Like, I don't know. Does Connor McDavid have top top row teeth? I don't. I don't know. Does he have? Does he have? We we know he has. You know, bottom row. We don't know if he has a top row of teeth yet because he hasn't haven't won anything. So we haven't seen that cat. Uh, haven't I'm, seen that cat smile. Hold on. I'm with you. I'm, I'm with you on, sure. on Connor on. and Leon. I'm pre- hold on. The, the, hold on. The, the, I'm pretty sure. Pl- I'm pretty sure that we've seen McDavid's top layer of teeth when he was forced to smile in the airport with that nice couple that one time in that photo. 
I think we saw the top layer of smiles. And most of the time when McKinnon was scowling, it wasn't because they were losing in the playoffs. It's because somebody was over in the corner of the room eating a Snickers. And he got very angry about it. (laughs) No candy bars in that room, folks. Uh, You know what? I do think that, like, I'm with you with with the Oilers, and I think they, they got a legit shot at winning all of this. Wouldn't surprise anybody. It would be great for that market and, and that team. The player that I circle, though, as being like the player that's put them into a different stratosphere is Matias Ekholm. Oh, by the way, was it as bizarre to you as it, it was to me watching the Nashville game yesterday? Okay? Watching Nashville and Tampa and seeing... Number 14, Gustav Nyquist. Yeah. Like we've seen Matthias Ekholm for so long, and then he's a forward. Like, I don't know. Things are always jarring the first couple of weeks. Like, oh, yeah, that guy's there. Oh, yeah, that guy's there. For some reason, that one just, like, smacked me in the face like ice ice water splash. Like, I'm like, oh, wow, 14 is a four. Do you have the same same response when you saw number 14 in Nashville? Like, wait a minute. That's supposed to be Matthias Ekholm. I actually did, and and that and it does happen a lot during this part of the season when you see uh, old faces in new places and and people wearing numbers that they shouldn't. Um, but your, the Ekholm part of of your math, I think, is correct in the sense that it really was a vital piece that that team was missing. And and I know he's going to end up probably playing with Bouchard this year, but I'll still count that as having two found foundational defensemen on your roster. You know, the, the, the DNA of a championship team is pretty clear. Like you got to have two foundational defensemen. Uh, you have, have, you have to have a goalie that won't lose you a series. And I think Skinner could be that. And then you need like two, you know, good centers and they have two of the best centers on the earth. So like they're yeah. built to, to, to contend. They're built to win. The supporting cast has to be up to the to the task, and the goaltending has to be up to the task. But when we look back at it, if they do actually win, like the Ekholm part of it is going to be one of the more essential ingredients to their victory. That 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 to me is the one, and we'll see what they end up doing this year. I mean, everybody in that organization is copper bust, copper bust, copper bust. You know, in, including the general manager who's on the last year of his. Uh, of his contract as well. Um, the big story yesterday, I mean, everything was all about Connor Bedard, and rightfully so. And even though he got chewed up at the dot uh, right off the hop by Sidney Crosby, and he got gobbled a couple of different times by Sidney Crosby at the faceoffs as well, which is intriguing because, as you'll recall, Sidney Crosby, the one area where he really struggled when he started, uh, was at faceoffs, and once upon a time he was that Connor Bedard getting chewed up by veterans at the uh, at the faceoff dot. I thought Bedard was exceptional, and like the the one yeah. point that I've been making ever since watching the game was he didn't play like a, a first game player who's just out there trying not to make a mistake. He was actually out there really really playing and using everybody around him, passing to everybody. Um, even though things are happening so quickly, still with the presence of mind to get it back to the point and distribute. And like, he wasn't out there just saying, oh man, it's my first game. I don't want to make a huge mistake. He was out there saying, every time I'm out here, I want to score and I want to do something. Like I I thought it was, I thought it was a super impressive debut. What about you? A couple things about him. First of all, 
the over two and a half shots on Bedard might be the easiest bet anyone will have made this season. I mean, that kid was going to come oh, out yeah. firing the howitzer at every opportunity. It was a pretty easy one to to win last night. Uh, yeah. Secondly, the thing that really impressed me about Merrick, I, I go back to when uh, Matt Duchesne entered the league. I remember having a conversation with Duchesne in his like first or second year, and we were talking about when you're a center, what the transition is like to go from level to level. And Duchesne told me that you know mm-hmm. offensively, the trick is you're trying to figure out what what in your repertoire will work against NHL quality defensemen. And you could see Bedard kind of noodling that Mm. through in his first game. But more importantly, Duchesne told me the hardest part of the transition from level to level is defense. Because now all of a sudden you are being tasked with playing a level of defense that you are not necessarily tasked to do in lower levels Mm. of hockey when you are an incredibly skilled and gifted offensive centerman. So what really impressed me about Bedard yesterday was that he was playing a lot of D. And doing it well and being in position and understanding where he needed to be on the ice. Now, that might just be natural gifts. Maybe that's good a good preseason with Luke Richardson. I don't know what it is, but that was the part of his game that I was really impressed with is that he didn't get exposed hardly at all defensively and was actually quite good defensively in that game. Yeah. He was... Um... The, the phenomenon of Connor Bedard is a fascinating one, too. I mean, everything in the pregame was about Connor Bedard. Um, <laughs> got the Emily Kaplan interview after the game on the bench. Like the, We all saw the uh, uh, the shots, you know, being surrounded by the press, uh, the appearance on the Pat McAfee show, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Did this kid look like a rookie at all at any point during any of this off-ice to you? Like, I, I don't know that we've seen a kid come into the league and look as comfortable and not look or mm. sound like a rookie more so than Connor Bedard yesterday and the past couple of no, days as well. That's the problem though. I mean, and that's what tells you that he's, he's still got room to grow. Cause I've talked to him and you've talked to him. Right. And oh yeah, he's, he's guarded. Like, like, like when you say he doesn't talk like a rookie, that's not a, that's not a he, compliment. It, the, the compliment, like, 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 I want him to talk like Jack Hughes did as a rookie. Like, I want him to be, talk like Fantilli does now. Like, I think there's something. I don't mm. think that he's an android. I think there's something in there. We saw him having a go at, at this and that at the awards. Remember, like, there's something in there where this kid has charisma that we haven't seen yet. And the problem is, is he's guarded to the point of tedium. And, and when you watched him in the, in the preseason and all those interviews, and yeah, it did get frustrating to be a phenom and have everybody ask you the same damn question over and over again, and your answer is, I don't know what my ceiling is this year. Let me go prove it on the ice. Like, I, I get that. I get when you're a kid, you don't want to have to do the junket. But the, the problem right now is that he's, he's become so guarded and so straightforward, and, and it is comfortable. You're right. Like, you watch him, there's a comfort level, but it's a comfort level that defies what he should be at this age and we need to kind of like get to that in order to really maximize the potential of him as maybe the new face of the league going forward there's one area where he really gets his back up and he's been like this going back to junior with the regina pats who weren't a great team by any stretch of the imagination um Whenever he's placed above the team, he gets really uncomfortable and shoots it down right away. 
I know. I'm sure you've noticed it. Whether it's, it's something it's like, stupid. oh, I haven't made the Blackhawks yet, so I don't know. I got to make yes. the team first. Oh, like, God, I hated that. It's that stupid oh, Canadian stop. kid humility that's 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 implanted in him by <laughs> hockey culture. And and I swear to God, like I, I interviewed him a bunch of times this summer, and I heard that same thing from him uh, about I haven't made the team yet. I'm like, buddy, the they sold five million tickets before they drafted you. <laughs> You're going to play. <laughs> they won the lottery and then they started selling tickets. Um, even if yeah. you're not there for the foot, you're getting that opening night. You're on the here, team. Here's, You've made the opening night if, roster. If I could conjure anything about Connor Bedard, this is what I would conjure. I wish that that yeah. kid walked in Chicago and they said, sir, young man, whatever. What, what Jersey number would you like to wear in Chicago? And I want a Connor Bedard that looks the equipment guy in the face and says, I'm in Chicago and I'm going to wear number 23 because that's how good I am. Oh, wow. And at the end of my career, <laughs> they will know me in Chicago as number 23. By the way, wow. a great number to pick for the Blackhawks because all you have to do is outkick uh, uh, Ryan Vandenbush, Christopher Stieg, Tough. and uh, Ethan Moreau. Mm -hmm to be the best 23 in Chicago. So Vandenbush, Moreau, and Christopher <laughs> well, Stieg, those here, are the on. only other 23s? Tell, hold, no, no, no. There's a bring bunch of other ones. There's a few that I don't know. Maybe you know. Can you tell me about J.P. Bordalo from 72 to 80? Because that predated J me. J.P. Bordalo was one of those players that was in the, the dark day. I shouldn't say dark days of the Blackhawks because early 70s, they were okay. Um, but I always refer to that as a Keith Magnuson era of the Blackhawks, which okay. was the beginning of the decline. And then there was that brief respite where you had the, the Denny Savard, Steve Larmer, Al Secord bump with Doug Wilson. But like, that was a that was a I'm, tough time getting through the 70s on that team. I'm not saying there was a Jordan effect, but if you look at the, the players that wore 23 in Chicago. By the way. Like 1984 yeah. on, it's all like – it's like Warren Reichel, Stu Grimson, Neil Wilkinson. It's a bunch of guys that, that guys that would wear it for like one season, Tough. and then either they're no longer there or they switch numbers. Versteeg wore it for what like like two seasons, I think. I think nobody wanted to wear twenty three in Chicago, and it's and Bedard should have taken the number. Oh, that's such a great idea. I want twenty three. Yeah, you know what? I don't think there's a Canadian kid that would do that. There might be an arrogant American like you. Greg Wyshynski, who would say, I want 23, I'll accept no other number. Um, that, is, that is really interesting. I've always said that if um, I got traded to a team, I would look, the first thing I would do is look at the, the history of the sweater numbers. And I would either pick one that hadn't been chosen yet or pick one where it was very clear that if I was at least a competent player, I would be known as the best at that number. That's the first, literally, before I called my I, parents... Before anything, I would just figure out what number I'm going to wear based on how I could become the best at that number. See, I always wondered about – I listen, I wondered about that with um, – before the Maple Leafs retired numbers and they would just honor them but keep them in circulation, there was one player specifically, and he's a really smart person and was a really smart player as well, and I always wondered – because you can't turn it down. Like, you're a rookie, you're a kid. I always wondered how Matt Stajan felt when they said, you're going to wear number 14 
if at any point anyone in the organization said, um, that's Dave Keon's number, you might want to rethink this for this second round pick we've just called up from St. John's, Newfoundland. We're putting number 14 on this kid. I always wonder what the conversation around that was. And if there was anyone in the organization that said, what are we doing? What are you, what are you giving them 14 well, for? Well, you that's the other thing. The other one. The other one that always makes me like like, like nuts is is the Rangers, where they they have number nine retired twice. They have it retired for Andy Bathgate, and they have it retired for Adam Graves. Yeah. And it's not as if when Adam Graves got there, they didn't know what they had in Andy Bathgate. <laughs> like so, like so <laughs> uh, that one always that one always that always uh, surprised me too. Maple Leafs have a twenty seven situation too. Um, elsewhere around the NHL, the other end of the rink in that Chicago-Pittsburgh game were the Pittsburgh Penguins. And, man, did Dubas get to work and turn over this roster. Now, I know we're not going to do a full-season audit after the first game on Eric Carlson, but Eric Carlson game one, eh. Your thoughts? Not not the best, especially on special teams, but the thing that gives me a little bit of, of nerves isn't necessarily what Carlson didn't do, but what the Penguins did again. Like you, you've done all this work to clean up the the cap. You bought in a Norris caliber caliber and Norris winning defenseman. And yet you mm-hmm. may still be the team that can't hold a lead and may still be the team that while you can't necessarily pin the whole thing on the goaltender, you've just given a five-year contract to, there's just a couple of those goals that you say, and eh, maybe someone else would have gotten it. And so, like, that's the thing that gives me a little bit of nerves about the Penguins yesterday is, 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 is sort of history repeating itself, the sins of last season coming back to haunt them this season already in, in game one against an opponent that, again, on paper, they should beat in a home opener. Maybe, we, maybe we've yeah. all underestimated the greatness of the Blackhawks, but the things that the Penguins did in that game were the things they did last year, and that's got to give them a little bit of, of, of concern. You see, I was having this conversation with someone yesterday about the Pittsburgh Penguins and what the strategy is here, or like what, what, what what's happening with the Pittsburgh Penguins. Um, because, you know, they're the oldest team in the NHL, and they're still together, and they're still taking swings at it. And as best as I can figure out, this is a team that, you know, Kyle Dubas goes in as the uh, as the new general manager, and the thinking is, one, we're keeping the band back together so we can sell tickets. So we're going to, you know, keep the familiar jerseys out there, and we're going to surround them with players that we're going to give term to, some bottom-end players that we're going to give term to because we're going to be okay. We're going to keep our heads above water, you know, we're going to be like sixth in the conference for a few years. We'll make the playoffs, probably flame out in the first round. Every now and then we may win a round, but we're not going to bottom out. And while this is going on, we're going to rebuild the organization. It's almost like right. a deliberate shot to sort of stay in the middle and stay in the mix. You know, you're not going to be hanging with the, uh, with, with the elite teams in the Eastern Conference. You're going to be good. Maybe every now and then you're going to win a round. And while that is going on, you know, under the water here, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the duck, the duck flapping its feet, 
what's going to happen <laughs> is they're going to rebuild the organization for that next generation of the Pittsburgh Penguins. I mean, that's the, the mandate that he that that's the mandate that 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 Kyle was given. I mean, that that was the big difference between him getting hired and what they were telling Brian Burke and Ron Hextall. Like Brian Burke and Ron Hextall were there to like you know make this team a contender ASAP and let's not worry about the future. Like Dubas was hired uh by by Fen- the Fenway group to not only, you know, keep this team competitive but also be the guy that builds towards the future. That's why I thought it was a great landing spot for him because there's he's, he's under no pressure or obligation to win another cup there. Like if it happens, great, and he'll get the credit for it. But if it doesn't, yeah. your job is to then shepherd in the next phase after these guys all retire. Now, the one thing you didn't say in that you mentioned like selling tickets and the whole thing. This is also trying to yep. do right by Sidney Crosby. Let's let's be honest. Like you are bringing back Malkin oh, and yeah. Latang to do right by Sid. You are bringing in Eric Carlson to try as you might to get Sid a fourth Stanley Cup. And 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 like you said, it's not to build the team that's going to that's going to earn 118 points in the standings. It's to build a team that can get into the playoffs and then hope in two week increments they can be better than their opponent. And and that's the hope. That's how you contend. That's the only path to a cup. It's not to build a world-beating juggernaut. It's to build a team that can eke in and then mm. hope your veterans are going to be healthy enough and uh, have the stamina to take out opponents one at a time. Finish this sentence. The most interesting team this season in the NHL is blank. Ooh. I mean, okay, so there's two answers to that, and they're both in the Atlantic. From a from a narrative standpoint, it's Boston because we've we've seen teams dominate like they dominated, although not to that level, and then lose in the first round. But we've then not seen those teams lose their top two centers, including their team captain yep. and and uh, organizational yep. standard bearer for 19 years. So from a narrative standpoint if they were able to pick themselves off the canvas and make the playoffs and contend it'd be one of the better stories of the year. And, and in fact, I, I also think that what happened to the Bruins repositions them in a way that speaks more to the Bostonian aesthetic than, than being a world beater. Boston loves an underdog. Like even when the Red Sox had the best roster in baseball, it was still all about them, you know, being the underdog and, and fighting the Yankees and same thing goes, I, I think, for the Patriots when they were beating up everybody in the Super Bowl and stuff. They were still like, you know, the underdog, you know, they had Tom Brady. So I think the repositioning of the Bruins as a blue collar underdog kind of fits the Boston aesthetic. The other team I'd say is Buffalo only because I think you're finding equal parts of believers and those who don't buy the hype and you and I have talked for years about if the Sabres ever break through and contend, that's your next oh, Chicago. That's so your good. next Boston. That's that's your next so uh, uh, market yeah. that absolutely explodes and drives a rating on its own if the team's competitive. So from that aspect, they're close. Yep. I happen to think they're a year away. But if they were to break through and, and really go on a ride this year, it's going gonna, it's gonna to energize this league. It'll be fun. Like once they once they finally get over that hump and get in the playoffs, you know it's going to be like a, 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 at least a ten year string because <laughs> everybody's there. Like everybody's locked up. Nobody's going anywhere. Yeah. Right. Uh, unless you know, all of a sudden, you know, uh, things get grouchy for a couple of star players. But 
you know, Rasmus Dahlin's locked up long-term. Tage Thompson, like, all these guys. Dylan Cousins, like, everyone's locked up long-term. The only question that I have about the Buffalo Sabres is the one that everybody has. You're betting on a kid going from college to full-time job in the NHL in nets without any time in the minors. And just because it hasn't happened doesn't mean that it can't. But, Craig... That doesn't happen. <laughs> that doesn't it, it, it happen does, in hockey. It doesn't happen, and it certainly doesn't happen behind a team. And this is the reason why I, I picked Ottawa instead of Buffalo to be the one that emerges, not knowing the injury malarkey and lineup issues that the Sabres, the Senators would have straight away. Mm. Um, I picked. Yeah. I didn't pick Buffalo because you're asking a young goalie to do this behind a team that doesn't defend. Like they just don't like. Tage Thompson's first uh, game in which he defends at a, at a, at a playoff caliber level will be his first, you know? And, and, and so that's the concern for me with the goaltending right now is that you can maybe throw in a kid behind a team that's got structure and, and is going to, you know, protect him and, and, and allow him to grow, but he's being thrown into the back of a team that doesn't defend. And so, I mean, yeah. if it works, if he gets them to the playoffs, he's going to, he's going to win the Calder in a walk, no matter what Bedard does. Uh, but that's really my issue for them from a goaltending perspective is that they're asking young, uh, a young goalie and, and others to do things behind a team that doesn't defend. Uh, I want to close by asking you about Barry Melrose, um, colleague of yours at ESPN. Uh, we've talked plenty of times about um, Barry Melrose. Uh, I'm old enough to remember him as a player and certainly old enough <laughs> to remember him as a coach. Uh, and a longtime analyst with uh, with ESPN and the retirement after the diagnosis of Parkinson's, I think hit us all really hard yesterday and certainly hit everybody at ESPN, including yourself, hard as well. Do you have a thought or two as we conclude about Barry Melrose? I do. I have many thoughts, but I'll, I'll share a couple here. Uh, I, 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 we, Arda, Arcal, and I talked about Barry on the episode of The Drop that'll come out tomorrow uh, on your podcast feeds, but... You know, from a personal standpoint, when Emily Kaplan and I got hired at ESPN, it was at a time of a lot of turnover at the company. It was a little bit turbulent, let's call it. And I don't know if there was anybody there that made both of us feel more welcome than Barry Melrose. Like, he had been an uh, an iconic guy at that place for decades, and he was happy to talk to you about the game, happy to talk to you about the company, happy to talk to you about anything and, and didn't big time you and didn't do anything. And, and then also was like, when you're on the road covering the playoffs, the guy making sure that you're, you know, part of the steak dinner that everybody's going to, you know? Hmm. And it's so like, he was a very gregarious guy and, and a very kind and open-hearted guy, um, which was the small town Canadian in him. The second thing I'll say is that, yep. you know, I know I know we're on on the radio uh, in Canada now, and and maybe people don't quite grasp this part of it, but without making the direct corollary for obvious reasons, he was the Don Cherry of the U.S. Like he was synonymous with hockey on television because of his position on ESPN. Yeah. Whenever anything hockey-related would happen, whether ESPN had the rights to the games or not, he would be the one on SportsCenter talking about it. 
And I didn't always agree with yeah. him. I remember having a real problem with how he treated the Devils moving to Newark, New Jersey, <laughs> as the Devils did uh, too. <laughs> uh, and and you know, he and I have definitely debated in the green room occasionally on on topics of hockey. But the bottom line is that, I mean, he was the iconic face voice. Um, and everything when it came to hockey coverage in the U.S. And synonymous to the point where we all knew about the mullet and the cigars and the, the suits. Like the whole thing about that guy <laughs> yeah. was iconic. And, yeah. um, you know, they have a thing called the Foster Hewitt Award for the Hockey Hall of Fame. It's given to a broadcaster. Uh, and he has not received it yet. And he should absolutely receive it for his part in in keeping hockey in the conversation uh on mainstream american sports television there's always been a bias for that award against people who work studio i hope the people that vote for it can rectify that there's a number of names that will come to mind that's for a, a different program but uh it's always been the sort of domain of people who work at the game um and i hope I hope for the for the for the sake of that award and for Barry Melrose, I'm with you. Um, they can start to look at people who have the nerve to work studio uh, in the pre, yeah. the intermission, and the post. Right? Like, yeah, exactly. And, and you know, put a little respect. Hockey Hall of Fame. Hewitt. Hockey Hall of Fame. Put a little respect on the eye desk. You know what I'm saying? Like a little bit of respect. <laughs> well, they did. Scott Morrison's already in. He's an honored member as well. It's that other guy. What go. was his name again? It's funny too when uh, when I'll tell you a quick Ida story when when Colby Armstrong. You'll love this one. Wish when Colby Armstrong uh, first jo- uh, first joined us at, at Sportsnet, he said he was talking to Crosby. And he said, "Yeah, I'm doing a lot of work with uh, with uh, with Jeff Merrick. We do a lot of a lot of games together." And Crosby says, "Oh, the iDesk guy." That's the level that I'm at. Oh, the iDesk guy. <laughs> the iDesk guy. Oh, that's brilliant. The iDesk guy. Welcome to, welcome to my career. Okay, we got to wrap up here. Thanks, Wish. We'll talk to you in seven days, pal. You got it. Take care. The great Greg Wyshynski from ESPN. ESPN.